Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Jillian. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled Identity Crisis, Identifying Crisis Types, Teams, and Management Strategies. In this episode, we will be discussing the field of crisis management and its applicability to the field of disaster management. Although these two terms and professions are often conflated, there are key differences to be aware of and some traps to avoid. To explore this, we'll be speaking with Dr. Timothy Coombs, who literally wrote the book on crisis management and reviewing some pearls and pitfalls. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. My name is Timothy Coombs. I was born and raised in Ohio here in the in the U.S. And then I did my graduate work at Purdue University and I did my Ph.D. work in public affairs and issues management. And that's when I first started getting interested in crisis communication those many, many years ago now. And from there, I've done a lot of research in the area of crisis communication, and that's led to me doing some consulting work, particularly training in various places in the US, Europe, and also in Asia as part of that. And I've written a few books about crisis communication. One of them, for some unknown reason, became very popular and remains popular today. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm at now. And in addition to that, I've, I've done some training along the way, doing training through FEMA and also through the Institute for Crisis Management. We're here to talk about crisis management and crisis comms. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, and it dawned on me recently that I don't actually really know what the difference between a crisis, a disaster, an emergency is, and there seems to be some overlap and some differences. So I'm wondering if you can sort of set the stage for us and define what crisis management and crisis communications really are. Uh, That's a common problem. Even people in academics who supposedly study the subject don't really understand what the difference is sometimes between a crisis and a disaster. At the key of a crisis, what you have is that the organization, I'm going to talk about organizations in crisis, stakeholders, they suddenly realize that organization has violated their expectations. They're doing something they don't believe the organization should be doing. Sometimes that's obvious. You're supposed to have an airline, plane crashes, that's a crisis. Other times it's less obvious. And that's when they're an organization is engaging in behaviors that your stakeholders now view as unacceptable. An example of that was going back years ago with Nike and the sweatshop labor that, well, it was fine up until a point, but then stakeholders said, no, no, we can't accept that anymore. And so you have those types of change. So there's violation of expectations. And those violations are significant and they have negative consequences for not only the organization, but oftentimes for the stakeholders themselves. If you're in a situation where you have a product harm, you've put out a food product that's contaminated with E. coli and it's you know making your customers sick. Well, that's negative consequences for the customers as well. And even in industrial accidents, people who live nearby the facilities oftentimes have damage to their property or other types of inconveniences need to evacuate that they need to deal with. So there's those negative consequences to it as well. And I would say what's unique in the organizational setting is a crisis requires you to shift focus. On an average day, you're pursuing your organizational goals and objectives, whatever those might be. But during a crisis, you can't be focused on those anymore. You need to focus on the crisis itself. And that's why crisis is a very unique and specific term within organizations. And many times managers are very grudgingly want to call a situation a crisis because they know it changes everything. 
And there's a lot of overlap with disasters because many crises are like disasters in that they present issues about public safety. Industrial accidents are a good example of that. Transportation accidents are that. And even product harms have those sorts of situations. And in disasters, you, you really need to get that information out there to help cope with that in terms of the physical threat that's there. There are many crises where there's not really a physical threat to other types of stakeholders. In fact, your crisis could be an event that happened months ago, sometimes for some organizations years ago. It finally comes out, and now it's viewed as, as a real problem. And there's this threat to your reputation. And for organizations, reputations are an incredibly valuable resource now. We invest a lot in reputations as organizations, and we need to protect them. And that's really a much different element than you're going to find on the disaster side. Because I, I think in, on the disaster side, you lead with the public safety, and reputation is there. But oftentimes in crisis, the reputation is at the forefront because that's really what the crisis is about. That reputation part is really sort of the unique part of the crisis communication. Now, you've done some work on classifying different types of crises and sort of breaking it down into to segments. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's, it's been real common in, in sort of the, the crisis on, on the academic side to try and figure out what are the crises that are out there? What are the types? Because the types matter. It's different crises put different demands on the organization and, and what they need to do. And through the research I've done, we've sort of been able to divide it up into three groups. We have what we call sort of victim crises. And these are, from a management perspective, the easiest to deal with because these are situations where not only are the stakeholders affected, but the organization has been attacked by some external force. That could be a, a terrorist attack. That could be workplace violence, even though that's your own people, that's still sort of an attack. It can be product tampering incidents, any of those where the organization is also a victim, along with the stakeholders who suffer the consequences of those crises. And so there's a very low responsibility for those. You're, you're really free to kind of go out and really focus on the victims and take care of them. because there's, there's not a lot of reputational threat there. Then kind of a step up from that, you have these accidental crises. Sometimes the stuff happens. Sometimes a train derails. Sometimes your software glitches and people can't board airplanes. These things happen. And those, again, aren't that hard to manage because you know what the inconveniences are. You can see the victims and you address the victim concerns. The third group is where it gets complicated, and that's management misconduct, what we kind of refer to as intentional crises. And that includes when your employees make mistakes. And I know that seems unfair that you're an organization, your employee makes a mistake. For instance, they don't properly label a product that went out. So people don't know there are nuts in it. Nuts are a deadly allergy. So that's a, that's a crisis waiting to happen. That's product harm. I'm going to have to recall that product now. And people think your employees shouldn't make mistakes as if they've never made mistakes themselves, but they hold the organization accountable for that. So then there's a, a, there's a larger responsibility. So now you need to do more. Not only do you need to address their concerns, we were talking more about sort of the value of apologies there, uh, the need for compensation going, I'm not just going to pay in case you had medical expenses, but I'm going to give you additional money or goods or some type of service on top of that. And what we're also finding is in some of the, the management's conduct is purposeful Clearly, management is doing things wrong. They've engaged in illegal or immoral behaviors. That can be discrimination. That can be harassment. That can be cases like Wells Fargo, where they were secretly charging customers for accounts they didn't know they have and they were paying for them. And while for the individual, that might have been a few dollars, the company was raking in millions from all of that. 
That's very purposeful and that's problematic. And part of that response when you respond to that is you need to acknowledge what you've done wrong. Some companies like to gloss over it and they say, oh, we're, they're just going to offer an apology or we're sorry this happened. But then your stakeholders are going, do you really know what you did wrong? Or is this just words? So if you tell me that you understand what you, you did something wrong, that's a better response because like, all right, I see that you understand how you did me wrong. And now that you're trying to fix that and, and corrective action is often a part of a lot of crisis communication is kind of talk that as part of sort of the, the base response, we call it the ethical base response is when you have a crisis, people always worry that it's going to happen again. So there's that anxiety that's created and your corrective action is saying, this is how we're going to try to prevent a repeat of the crisis that helps to soothe that anxiety. So that's why that's kind of a central part of any type of crisis communication. But that's sort of the, the range of crisis types we have and a little bit about how it's different in responding to each one. You know, I can already see a lot of overlap between crisis management and disaster management. I think typical disaster management ideologies kind of center around that first type where it is public safety, not our fault. Everyone's impacted. Let's just do our best. But as we know, agencies respond to disasters and all disasters are political. So it's very possible to have some of these other types of crises within a disaster. And I know we've seen that in COVID with everything from uh, misconduct to people going against uh, uh, their professional colleges to, to all of these um, very diverse public health impacts and opinions out there. So I think there is a lot that we can learn from crisis management theory. And maybe that's a good segue is like, what, what is crisis management? What are some pitfalls and pearls in that realm? Sure. And I, I think, you know, crisis management sort of drew upon disaster management. So it's for its fundamental model that we, we look at that there's, we can look at it as three phases. There's pre-crisis. What am I doing beforehand? There's my response and then my post-crisis. And if we think about those three areas, then we can talk about what are some of the, the good things that are being done in crisis management. I think crisis management on the pre-crisis side, you focus on risk. That's where you got to start. Any crisis communication program, any crisis management program begins with what are our risks? And that's something you need to review regularly because your risks change as organizations. Smart organizations do that. Whether it's quarterly or sometimes monthly, they sit down with the committee and say, you know, how are our risks? Do we have some new risks out there? Are some of our existing risks changing? Because if you go back 10 years, your risks were much different than they were today. And COVID reinforced that, that, hey, suddenly there could be a risk that was way back there in the back of your mind. You weren't thinking that much about that. Now you got to really talk about it a little bit more. You know, when you talk about risk, we, we think about physical risk, but there's also reputational risk. What am I doing as an organization that could put me at risk? If you think about your supply chain and how you treat people within the supply chain, that changes. What are the expectations? At one point in time, companies didn't feel at all responsible for their supply chain. Now their stakeholders hold them responsible for their supply chain. That means if one of the companies you're doing business is suddenly revealed to be using child labor, that's your problem. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, that's just my supplier. It's like, no, that's, that's your responsibility. Or your supplier decides, well, I've run out of regular paint. I'm going to use this lead-based paint on these children's toys. And you're like, well, no, now I'm selling a, a toy that has lead-based paint in it. That's, that's your toy. It's your name on it, not some unknown supplier down your chain. 
And those are big reputational risks. And one of the things that companies have really had to start to think about in terms of where the idea of corporate social responsibility comes into play as, as there are greater expectations about what matters and what should be socially responsible, that's new risks that need to be managed. So when we, we talk about looking at a broad range of risks with crisis, it's not just those physical risks. Some companies get a little lax internally and have questionable ethical practices. When those come out, they come back to haunt you. So the, your, your internal sort of ability to monitor the ethicality of the behavior of employees becomes part of that as well. So you have a lot to be monitoring and looking at and preparing for as part of that. And those risks then inform your plan. And it's not like you develop one plan for every risk or every type of crisis, but you have these general categories. You know, all right, here's some reputation I can work on this. This relates to how I do work within my facility. This relates to my customers. So you can then create sort of uh, what Mitrov called this portfolio of, of crisis plans. So you, you cover most of your bases. And you're always playing the odds because risk calculations are based upon odds, you know, you know, likelihood, impact, and now velocity, how quickly something will happen. And sometimes you get the calculations wrong. Risks have a way of kind of sneaking up. It's like, oh, that didn't seem important. And now ooh, that, that's really important for us. And, and part of your planning is thinking about your internal and your external audiences. And historically in crisis communication, we've taken internal audiences for granted and that, that's not that's not good. When you look at the cases more carefully, employees who are better informed during crises feel better about the organization and are willing to help and stay with the organization, much more so than employees who were forgotten or left out of the loop in the communication. Because it's very easy to focus just on, oh, I need to talk to my customers. I need to talk to my investors. I need to talk to the news media, the government. And you forget about your employees and they should know things first. One of the, the worst things you can happen is your employee learns about your crisis through the media. And nowadays that's even harder because it's going to pop up on a social media feed. And wow, that, that's, that's horrible because they feel bad and that really damages their relationship with the organization. And so you have all that preparation based upon risks. And so you, you create the plans and you, you want to be able to construct a team. The main reason to construct a team is so your team can train. And that way you can see, do these people really work on a team or not? Because someone might be really, really good at their job, but you put that person on a crisis team and they don't contribute. Crises are stressful. They're very ambiguous. And the ambiguities would create so much of the stress. You're operating in an environment where you're trying to learn more information. And that's really what separates it from a lot of your, your traditional communication in an organization. There, you, you have a lot of information, probably often more than you need. And in a crisis, you often have less than you need. So the ambiguity is, really makes a difference. And that's a driving factor. And that's what you learn through the training. And sometimes, unfortunately, through crises themselves who work and who don't work on the teams. And that includes your, your spokesperson. Who can you send out there to talk to people? Don't just send out anybody. They really need to have some sort of media training ahead of time so that they present themselves well for the company and get the messages across clearly. And I think those are some of the key parts then of the pre-crisis phase is you develop your plan, you train, and in part of your training, you test your plan. Did, did your plan work? Was it helpful at all? Did, you, did it have the type of contact information you need? Did it have links to other information you need? I'm seeing a lot of similarities between yeah, the preparedness side for incident management teams. And I think the same sort of thought process is happening within 
designing incident management teams. It used to be just get as many people their ICS training as possible. But now I think it's being uh, the best incident management teams I've worked with are ones that are selected based on their role within the community, the connections they have and the authority they bring, um, not necessarily just a, a, you know, a volunteer or someone who has the time to take the, the ICS training. So is the same sort of thing true in crisis management teams is that uh, organizational authority and connectivity and uh, influence is kind of the king in, in who you determine is on the team? Yes, very much so. It's often recommended you need to have one person on there who has the right to speak for the CEO. You oftentimes don't want the CEO on, on the team, and there are lots of reasons for that, some good, some bad, some CEOs, but they can inhibit the process is the bottom line, and you want your team to be able to function better. So they, they need that connectivity, and that connectivity helps them also not only they know who to contact to get information, and they know those people will respond to them because they have a little bit of cachet. You don't want to just throw on your most junior people onto your crisis team because oh, it's, no one really wants to do that, so we're going to stick the new people with it. You, you have to have people on there who have a certain credibility within the organization to really kind of talk for the organization and to collect the information that, that they need. Yeah, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about why you wouldn't want that senior, senior leadership on a crisis mm -hmm. management team, or if there is room for them. Uh, again, I'll draw the parallel to incident management teams. It's not often that you see a, a mayor or a CAO or something on an incident management team, but more and more for protracted and highly political disasters, we are seeing political uh, involvement in like very, sometimes very tactical levels of emergency management. So what are your thoughts on that? What I noticed when I'm in organizations, people act differently around the CEO. And that difference is usually a shutdown and there's a risk of deference to the CEO. So that what you have is instead of a team that's talking, discussing, really kind of engaging in these ideas, Whatever the CEO, whatever he or she says, that goes. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, we'll just go along with that. You know, there's not a willingness to question that you would if you're more sort of, oh, we're, we're all pretty much equal. We're on this team. You say something, I have a right to question that. The CEO, he or she says that. I'm, I'm not sure I should say anything because maybe that's not good for me politically. Any crisis team within an organization, there are going to be some political issues going on. There are going to be some power issues, some personality conflicts. That's natural. That occurs. And you have to work through that as a team. And the CEO can just heighten that. And when you see mistakes that are being made by organizations in communication, oftentimes that is drawn back to who the CEO is and how he or she acts. You can have a really good team and they've got a really good course of action. The CEO comes in and says, that's not what I want to do. And they go off in a different direction. In most cases, that's going to be harmful uh, to the organization. Occasionally, a CEO will have an insight that will take an organization in the right direction. And that's usually a case where they are an organization has decided to approach something from a legal position, which is we're going to say as little bit as possible, and we're going to try and protect ourselves legally instead of being bolder in how you approach and try to help people. A quick example of that is years ago, uh, there was a case where a large petrochemical company, Texaco, had a case where it was charged that two of their senior executives were on tape making very racist comments. And this was leaked to the media. And initially, legal was dominating the crisis discussion and said, we're just going to hold, we're just going to say this is going to go into litigation, don't say anything else. 
The CEO said, no, we're going to accept responsibility for this. We're going to suspend those two people. We're eventually probably going to fire them, but there will be an investigation. And we're going to address this now and say, we've, we've got a problem here at Texaco and we need to fix it. And legal like, well, no, you, that's going to cost us money. And he said, no, that's what we're going to go. That's the direction to go. And he was right. But that's not always the case. You, 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 you get some uh, crazy, inappropriate CEOs. There was one, a mining one out in, in Colorado who claimed that the mountain was fighting them and started talking all these weird things about the mine disaster that left everyone confused as to what was going on there. Is that sort of ownership of, of the issue and being up front? Is that this idea of stealing the thunder of the incident? Yeah, that's part of it. That's what drives stealing thunder. Stealing thunder is where you as an organization are the first to report that you have a crisis. So you've got to really be willing to own it and step in and say, yeah, this is this is what's going on. So we don't find about at it from another source, say the media, and then you as a, someone in the organization talk about it. Companies often fail to steal thunder. Wells Fargo is an example of that. They knew of their problem well before it came out probably three months before it was then released through the news media, through the, through the LA Times. And, and they didn't steal the, the thunder, but you need to kind of, you got to get out in front of it. You got to be willing to own the issue, but you can own the issue really at any point. And I'll give you an example of some really good crisis communication where the CEO didn't steal the thunder, but she didn't get a chance to steal the thunder. And that was Mary Barrett took over for General Motors and they're in the middle of a crisis over uh, a problem with their ignition switch. And their ignition switch would cut out, meaning the electrics wouldn't work in the car. And in certain cars, that meant their airbags didn't deploy. You didn't have power brakes and you could lose control of your car. And there were a number of fatal accidents. Bear comes in. This is all, this crisis has already been going on and it had been lingering for about a year in various stages. And she just said, this is inappropriate. This is unacceptable for General Motors. We're going to take responsibility for this. We're going to see what we did wrong. We're going to try and make sure we don't have this happen again. And then she was lauded in the media because she had that ownership. So she wasn't there for the initial step. She came and said, we're just going to take responsibility and move from there. So we've sort of merged already into the during or the response phase of crises. Let's keep on talking about that. What are some pearls and pitfalls of the, the during? Some of the ones that the pitfalls you have are crisis managers get seduced by options they think might help, might help alleviate their problems, but it's really just going to make them worse. And that would be denial and scapegoating. You think, oh, I'll just deny it. And maybe people will forget about it. If you're guilty at all, that's just going to make the situation worse, what uh, some people call a double crisis, because your response was so bad, people are even more upset about what you're doing. Scapegoating, you try to blame someone else. Well, that's the opposite of taking responsibility. And that's what they want. They want accountability. They want managers to be accountable. When managers come out and say, this is a problem, we own this problem, they get points from their stakeholders. Stakeholders like to hear that. I mean, yeah, they're going to think a little bit less of the company for a while, but that's a short-term loss. Those are, those are scapegoating denial, really bad options. I just wanted to make a comment on, on the denial part. Is this denial of the facts of the incident, or is this more about denying the perception that there is an incident? Because I see people falling into that trap all the time. It's like, no, you're wrong. The facts are this, this, and this, but that doesn't seem to really matter. It's more the, we are in crisis versus we are not. Yes. The denial is more about whether or not we're in the crisis that sometimes organizations do try to dispute facts. And that's only useful if there is a factual error. If it's, if it's a matter of perception, you're not going to win that fight. Uh, 
Audi for nearly seven years fought a perception that they had a problem, sudden acceleration in their cars, and they fought that with their customers. They, they never won that perceptual battle. But if there are facts you can contest, yes, you can test the facts. But the denial is really saying, no, there, there, there's no problem here. Let's move on. Everything's fine. What are some other pearls and pitfalls? Yeah. The best piece of advice is start with the victims. And you start with their physical safety, if need be, and then go to their psychological safety. And psychological safety includes reassurances that you're doing everything you can to prevent a repeat of this crisis. If you think about Boeing and the Boeing Air Max, they took those planes out of the air for well over a year. Well, if you're flying on one, you want to know they fixed it. And then that's kind of the corrective action and kind of reducing that anxiety. So that's, that's, that's critical to that. And that really is the base for any type of crisis you have in your response. And from there, you, you can add in. You can add in apologies. You can add in compensation as need be. And sometimes people talk about bolstering. And that's where you remind people of the good things your organization has done, or you thank people who have helped you. And bolstering is a, a secondary strategy. If you, if you only did bolstering, that looks weird, but it can help a, a little bit during a, a crisis. And kind of going along with denial and scapegoating being a problem, silence is a problem. When organizations don't say anything, or organizations say something that no one is really going to believe. When Volkswagen had the problem with hooking up their cars and suddenly they could game the emission machines through their software, so it, it thought the cars really didn't pollute as much as they did. When they said, oh, that was just a few engineers responsible for that, no one believed that. Like, this has been going on for years. And we're supposed to believe just a few kind of mid-level engineers did all this and nobody knew about that, particularly upper management didn't know about it, that this wasn't a systemic problem. You have to give a credible response. And those are probably the key elements that you need to know about with, with the response for that. Let's talk a little bit about the post phase or the recovery phase. Yeah, the, the, the post phase. And again, you see, this is where it sort of, sort of mirrors the disaster side. And there's a lot of emphasis in disaster and recovery and kind of rebuilding and all of that. And the recovery on the organizational side is usually a little bit different. What you're doing there is, first of all, you're trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. How can I improve my crisis management and crisis communication? So what did I do well? What did I do wrong? But you also need to do a lot of follow-up communication. What else do people need to know? I've had this disruption now this disruption is ending. What does this now look like? What does this mean for people from the future? So, so what, what's going to be changing in the organization as a result of this crisis? Have we learned some lessons where we need to make pretty major changes in our organization or these sort of minor modifications we're going to make? And one of the unique features, and this is a sense of memorials. When people have, there's either been a loss of life or people have been seriously injured, there is an, a need to remember them and memorials are a way that's done. And we, we oftentimes think of memorials as physical objects and they, they often are. And there've been a number of even corporate disasters that have been marked by physical monuments, some plane crashes, even some industrial explosions. But many now are digital in nature and are spontaneously formed around that. And organizations need to decide how they're going to integrate in with these emerging digital memorials are they a part of it? Can they be a part of it? Should they be a part of it? They need to ask those sorts of questions. And then uh, oftentimes anniversaries are another way that you can do that. And those are markers for memorials. When the Costa Concordia sank off the coast of Italy a number of years ago, the first anniversary, and that's a big one, it tends to be first, fifth, and 10th, the cruise line had a major celebration planned. 
The problem was they only involved families of those who perished on board. People who survived were very upset that they were not part of this memorial process. And their rationale was, well, it's a small town. We can't take all these people. They still should have thought of that. They didn't think through the memorials. In Texas City, there's an explosion BP, and they had something to mark the first anniversary. They had the fifth, they had the 10th. Now, most of that was driven by a law firm that had litigated many of the cases against BP, but it was a way of remembering those, and those stories came out. Where I teach at Texas A&M University, in, in the 80s, we had a, a tragic accident involving a bonfire and loss of student life. And that's remembered annually on campus. There's a, a day to remember the bonfire and those sorts of tragedies. So we've talked a lot about some of the pearls and, and pitfalls in the management. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the plan. What makes an effective crisis management plan? Uh, what are some good ones? What are some bad ones? Well, what makes a crisis communication plan good is usability. If you create something that's too big and too cumbersome, uh, that's not good because I, I, people can't use it effectively. Not enough information on that, that's a problem too. So you, you kind of have to figure out what's usable. And in terms of usable, what is most useful is contact information. That's kind of your, your key ingredient there is who might I need to reach whether that's someone internal or we might need to bring in someone externally. You also would put in reminders to yourself that in a particular crisis, I need to contact the following government entities because that's part either by law or by regulation they need to contact. And you also, the team should be documenting what they're doing along the way. And so that's another sort of reminder that you have when you, with your crisis plan or what to document when you make decisions, when you take actions to document those. And that documentation is because you know later on there will be lawsuits, but that documentation also helps you when you review with the crisis team. So uh, for me, a good plan is one that's usable and a usable plan has information for contact information for people, has reminders about things you might need, need to do, and also ways to document key points and decisions within your crisis management efforts. That is the most concise <laughs> description of a crisis <laughs> management plan I've ever heard, and I love it. Now, one of the key members of a, a crisis response team is, of course, crisis communications team, and maybe that's a whole other team. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some core principles of, of crisis communication teams and practices. Yeah, for the crisis communication team, you, you really need to practice to get used to doing this because it's unusual. You are operating oftentimes in a very short time frame with very limited information. And that's usually the opposite of what you do regularly on the job. And if they're going to then also help either train spokespeople or be spokespeople, they need to know how to answer and respond to questions in the type of format that you might find in a news or a press conference. You, you need some experience with that. And the, the team members are there to really facilitate a lot of, of the process and to remind the organization, there are external audiences here too that, that you, you, you might not understand very well. And how will that message play with them? They should represent their external stakeholders, but they also should represent the internal, the employee stakeholders as well. How will these messages play with these other groups? what information is critical to get to these various groups and why you need to communicate with them. Because I've seen this in simulations, teams will get so focused on the task, they forget to communicate those actions to stakeholders that really need that information. 
and it's, it's not just the psychological comfort that information can provide. Oftentimes it, it can relate to their physical safety as well. They, they need to know to leave an area. They need to know the shelter in place. We had that happen in the U.S. in the, the uh, mass shootings at Virginia Tech. They didn't bother to tell the student population about the initial attacks. And as a result, there were more attacks later that wind up for more loss of life. And so the team really needs to practice that and be ready with those skills and be very good at facilitating the whole group process to try to get everyone involved. Because if someone's not involved, they're not contributing important knowledge and information that could really help the team. So truly crisis comms can actually save lives and, and advise protective actions. Mm-hmm. Now, very quickly, I'm wondering if you can go through a few of your list of uh, do's and don'ts for crisis communicators. The do's list is whenever you're asked a question, answer it. There, there's one train of thought that you are given your talking points and no matter what they ask, you're going to get back to your talking points. Well, that's fine. And we see politicians do that a lot, but if you don't answer the question before you throw in your talking point and connect up to your talking point, reporters are smart. They know when you're not answering their questions. So answer the question. Some, some of the don'ts are don't say no comment. There are other ways of saying that. Well, we can't talk to that at this point in time because either we don't have the information about that and I'll give it to you when I get it, or due to legal considerations, I can't discuss that. There's an ongoing investigation. And and that oftentimes happens if there's a criminal element to what you're dealing with. There was a case where Red Bull was dealing in, in, uh, in Austria and Germany with a potentially potential product tampering incident. And they just, they couldn't talk about the legal proceedings until the investigation was completed. So there, there can be things that sort of tie your hands, make that known, be honest with them. And people will believe you if you've developed a, a good relationship with the media beforehand. And that is sort of a, another do is make sure you have a good working relationship with the media that regularly when the media asks you for information, you give them information. And we like to talk about in crisis communication that you, you have to have you know, complete transparency. Everything is open. Well, we know that's never quite true in an organization. There's always some stuff you might not tell if you don't need to, because it's not essential that people know about it. And if they know about it, it, it could create more problems than good. And, and you always have to ask yourself, what do we really need for the public safety? And most of the time, that's really easy. And I, I did some training with a group where it wasn't that easy because they were private contractors working with the government for defense contracts. And what they did was sensitive. And if there was a chemical release, they weren't allowed to say the exact chemical because that was a defense secret. They had to say what it was like so that you could take the necessary precautions. But they did have a clause built in that if things were really bad, they had the discretion to make the call to release information that might be sensitive, and therefore they wouldn't be tried for treason. So that that was the first time I ever met crisis communicators who had the risk of treason held over their head in in terms of, of what they might communicate. So you want to be as open as possible, but that doesn't mean saying everything, but you want to tell people everything that's necessary. And, you know, what's necessary, sometimes people can abuse that. And that's, that's problematic. That, that's a don't. Like, there was one case where this, this one corporation said, well, we can't tell you about that because we're working with the government. And the government turned around and said, oh, they can tell you anything you want to know about that. They're lying to you. So <laughs> you, have, you have to keep those parts of it as well. You know, 
Thank you so much for joining us. Just before you go, I'm wondering if you can tell us and our listeners where we can go to find out more about this sort of thing. Sure. There's some great resources out online if you're interested in learning more about crisis communication. Peter Sandman does a lot with risk and crisis, and he has a lot of resources he puts up online, and that's like psandman.com. A lot of resources, risk and crisis, allows people to get out there for free. You can also look at the Crisis Management Institute. They also have quite a few materials, as well as uh, Here in the U.S., FEMA has a lot of resources, particularly for emergency managers. FEMA is not always the best at responding, but they're really good at training and they kind of know what they should do. They don't always do it right, but they're there with, with a lot of good information. Dr. Coombs, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast and for everything you do for Crisis Communications. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This was a great conversation. So that interview was recorded on January 6, 2022. And something I think it's very important to note is that during the interview, his office was absolutely filled with mint condition Star Wars paraphernalia. <laughs> so the force is definitely strong with this one. That is correct. And maybe another important thing is uh, the type of crises that he talked about. I really like this idea of crisis typology and some of the techniques, good and bad, for managing reputation, which seems to be a factor in all crises. So we thought this was worth emphasizing and reviewing, so we took a look at one of his articles that he wrote for the Institute for Public Relations and came away with a few key points. Uh, Take it away, Jillian. So Dr. Coombs shared a few different types of crises in in the interview, like workplace violence, technical errors, and organizational misconduct. And in the article, he has a few more. So we want to share those with you. Under victim crises, uh, there's a few additional types. So natural hazards was one, and the other was rumors. So having false or damaging information being circulated about your organization. Under the uh, category of accident crises, a technical error accident could basically produce uh, some kind of an industrial accident of some some kind. And it is different from um, what Dr. Coombs mentioned in the interview, which is more along the lines of a technical error product harm, um, which is when the product causes some kind of harm or is defective in some way. And in the last category, preventable crises, Dr. Coombs spoke about organizational misdeeds and human error product harm. Uh, One additional type under this category is a human error accident. Um, And that's when an industrial accident maybe is caused by human error. Um, So this is a type where you'd wanna have a strong crisis response. I really do like this idea of typing crises. I know you can't put things in a box perfectly, but if you know roughly where you are, then you can start to pick the right response. The other thing that I found really interesting was this idea of reputation management and reputational crises. We sort of talked about some of the techniques for managing reputation in the interview in terms of good and bad or pearls and pitfalls. And I don't think it's that simple. There's probably a time and place for all sorts of different techniques. So here is a list of nine reputational repair strategies that was part of his article. And as I go through them, I want you to think of times where you or an organization has used them both 
poorly and well. So number one, attack the accuser. Crisis manager confronts the person or group claiming something is wrong with the organization. Number two, denial. The crisis manager asserts that there is no crisis. Number three, and we see this one an awful lot, scapegoating. The crisis manager blames some person or group outside of the organization for the crisis. And we talked about that as something that has a high level of risk involved in it. Number four, the excuse. And there's a couple of subtypes in here. So the crisis manager minimizes the organizational responsibility by denying any intent uh, or ability to, to control the harm that was done. There are these three different subtypes, provocation. So the crisis was a result of a response to someone else's actions, uh, defeasibility. So a lack of information about events leading to the crisis situation, accidental. So just lack of control over the events, or we had good intentions, but things went wrong. Number five, justification. The crisis manager minimizes the perceived damage caused by the crisis. Number six, a reminder, the crisis manager tells stakeholders about all the good things that we've done in the past. Number seven, ingratiation, the crisis manager praises stakeholders for their actions, so thanks them. Number eight, compensation, the crisis manager offers money or other gifts to victims. And number nine, and probably the one that needs to be done more often, is the apology. The crisis manager indicates the organization takes full responsibility for the crisis and asks stakeholders for forgiveness. So I can think of a number of uh, examples in very recent history where a number of these were used and uh, rather polarizing results for, for some. And I think what's interesting about this list is that they all may seem familiar because we've seen ex different examples out there, but seeing them out on a list, just think that there's nine different tools of the trade here and, and ways to respond is quite incredible. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Coombs for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of crisis management. Thanks for listening. Just before we go, I do want to give a shout out to our sponsors. This episode was brought to you in part by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. For this episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Book Woman. The Book Woman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous people to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. That's bookwomanpodcast.ca. This episode was also brought to you in part by Rumi, who have prepared a quick clip, which I will play for you now. Hi there, I'm Brendan, a certified home inspector with Rumi. Do you have a problem that needs fixing? Whether it's big or small, inside or outside, let me help you find out what's really going on. You can call me by phone, or we can take a look together over video chat. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and go to Ask a Home Inspector to book your appointment with me today. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. 
The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. <laughs>